Here in the, the study of, of Jonah, we uh, left off with a very simple beginning to Jonah. We see that uh, the Lord has told Jonah to go up to Nineveh. And rather than his prophet going up to Nineveh, he has gone down to Joppa. He has paid the fare and now he has gone down into the ship and is on his way from running from the presence of the Lord. And we noted at at the end and there at the beginning of verse four of Jonah one that what you see happening is that God is not done with his prophet. Uh, that is not the end of the story in verse 3 where Jonah quits on God, runs away, and God goes, well, that's a bummer. I hate losing a prophet like that. End of story. Rather, God is going to try to rescue him. God is going to try to bring him back. And this is the relentless grace that we are going to see throughout our study of the book of Jonah, giving us these pictures of who God is as he attempts to try to rescue his wayward prophet. Now, one of the things that I think is important to see, as uh, Dathan just read for us, is at the beginning of verse 4, and if you know the story of Jonah, you just might think, well, Jonah got on a ship and things got kind of crazy. And through a series of unfortunate events, you know, the storm gets really bad and here things get really crazy. But won't you notice the beginning of verse 4 because it says there specifically that the Lord brought the storm. This isn't, well, this is really a bad time of year. You really picked a bad day, Jonah. This is God's hand. Jonah thinks he's going to run from God. And now God in this moment is going to hurl a great wind upon the sea. And he's going to do this to such a degree that you'll notice in verse 4 it says that the ship threatened to break up. And you might on the surface think, man, God's just trying to kill Jonah here after what he's, he's done. But if you know anything about the story, that's not what God's doing. Here is God coming and trying to rescue his wayward prophet. Here is the Lord hurling a storm on the sea. The ship is now in trouble. You'll notice that we are told in verse 5 that these seasoned sailors start jettisoning cargo off of the ship, trying to do everything they can to lighten the load so that the ship can stay above the waters so that they don't sink and so that they all do not die. And you'll notice in verse 5, we are told that they are crying out to their gods as they're hurling the cargo over the sea. And you can just imagine the chaos of all that is going on as God is trying to wake up his wayward prophet, trying to bring back his wayward prophet. And I think it is interesting to think about what God is doing in this scene because it reminds us that God's not okay with our rebellion, but at the same time also reminding us that he's trying to generate repentance out of Jonah. This is a wake-up moment. This is trying to get Jonah to open his eyes, rethink his decisions, turn things back around and pay attention to what God is telling him to do. And the scriptures over and over again tell us that God is in the business of trying to wake us up. I love Elihu's speech to Job and you get out to Job 33 and and Elihu makes the point to him that, you know, God will do these things in life two, three times to turn the soul away from the pit. 
that God is trying to rescue his people through the storm. Now, here's the hard part about that is that you have to think about this perspective when the storm hits. Because I don't know that the first thing that we do in the midst of the storm is say, God is good. <laughs> look at God trying to wake me up and rescue me. <laughs> look at how God is, you know, coming into my life and saying, okay, I need to turn around and follow him with all of my eyes. No, we do. Typically, when the storm hits, we say the opposite. God is bad. God is terrible. God is awful. What is he doing? I don't understand. And sometimes we'll allow that rebellion to harden all of the more. When what God is trying to do is open our eyes, get us to look upward. And you see that picture here. And I want you to think about Jonah for the moment, especially if you know how the story plays out in Jonah's life. What would have happened to Jonah if God does not send this storm? Jonah's spiritual life is doomed. He's just going to ride the ship all the way out to Tarshish, think he's retired from God, in his mind live happily ever after, and be completely spiritually doomed. This is God's goodness to send the storm, to try to wake up this wayward prophet. And to try to bring him back into relationship with him. But I want you to notice as you think about verse 5. While the sailors are afraid. While they're crying out to their gods. While they're jettisoning the cargo overboard. You can imagine the scene as it unfolds on the ship. You were told something pretty fascinating there in the end of verse 5. Notice we continue the direction. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. I want you just to imagine that while the seasoned sailors are doing everything to save their lives and to save, save the ship, Jonah doesn't care. I'm just going to sleep on through this. And I, I don't think it would be fair to say that he was that hard of a sleeper. The ship is threatening to break into pieces, the text tells us. The ship is getting wrecked. And he doesn't care. He absolutely doesn't care. Rather than go up and do something, he remains in the lowest part of the ship. He is absolutely ignoring the storm. Here is the threat that's going on. And Jonah's like, whatever. Don't care. Carry on. Take me to my destination. Not going to pay attention to the storm at all. And I think it is interesting that we see these pagan Gentile sailors paying attention to the storm. But Jonah is ignoring the storm at all costs. In fact, you'll notice while he's down there with no response to the storm, he just rolls over and keeps on sleeping. Verse 6 tells us, the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? What, 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 what are you doing down here? How can you be sleeping at a time like this? Here we are calling out to our gods, throwing cargo overboard. We're trying to save the ship. We're trying to save our lives. And you're going to sleep through this? Get up, verse 6. Arise. Call out to your God. 
And perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Something very interesting here. That these pagan sailors seem to have a greater spiritual awareness than Jonah. (laughs) They, They know the solution. We need to cry out to our gods. And they cannot believe that Jonah is not engaging in the same solution. You need to pray. You need to call out to God in the middle of this storm. Perhaps he will pay attention to us. Perhaps he will rescue us. Perhaps he will come and do something for us. How can you be down here asleep? And it takes these pagan sailors to come and state the obvious to Jonah. Jonah, you need to get up and do something. Now, I want you to notice something in particular. Verse 7 does not say... And so Jonah climbed up on the deck and he bowed his knees before God and prayed to the Lord that this storm would stop. It doesn't say anything that Jonah did. They're telling him, you need to call out to your God. And it appears that Jonah goes, nah, I don't think so. Nothing is moving Jonah. Throw a storm? No, I don't care. Have all the sailors tell you, you know what you need to do is call out to God? No, not going to do that either. And so I want you to notice then what happens next. In verse 7, these sailors then say to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know. On whose account this evil has come upon us? So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. You have to love that. All right. Somebody did something because we're all about to die out here. Who did it? Cast lots. It all falls on Jonah. You'll notice in verse eight, the questioning. Who are you? Why are you here? What are you doing? What's your purpose? What's going on? They completely ask him everything that is going on in this scene. Who are you? What people are you? Where'd you come from? Why are you doing all this? And notice in verse nine, what Jonah's answer is. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Really? That's an interesting thing to say, Jonah. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Do you at this moment? It is interesting that Jonah has all the words. But he certainly doesn't have the actions. He doesn't have the obedience. Nothing at this moment in his life looks like he fears God at all. He is saying, I fear God, heaven and earth. Yes, I'm a Hebrew, Hebrew, all that. But actions, no. And what is particularly interesting is we're told in verse 10 that the sailors here are absolutely terrified. And I want you to notice carefully why they're terrified. It doesn't say that they're terrified because of the ship. It doesn't say that they're terrified because of the storm. Look at verse 10. It says at the end of verse 10 that they knew that he was trying to flee the presence of the Lord because he told them. You can imagine how that story went. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I fear the Lord, God of heaven and earth, and I'm trying to run away from him. 
And their eyes just must have exploded. You're trying to do what? Look at what's happening. How dare you try to run? We are absolutely terrified that you are running from the presence of the Lord. But friends, is Jonah terrified? No. He was quite fine being down the bottom of the ship, sleeping away. The sailors understand what decision you're making and running from God is an absolute disaster. Why would you do such a thing? And Jonah continues to seem to shrug his shoulders. And in fact, you'll notice that he knows that the reason why this is happening is because of him. In verse 11, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for the sea only grew more and more tempestuous? Just imagine the sea is raging more. A few verses ago, it says the ship is threatening to break apart. It's not getting any better while they're having this conversation. And so they say to Jonah, what are we supposed to do? I am stunned by Jonah's response. Would you not think verse 12 would say, since the reason for this storm is because of me, let's turn this ship around and I'll go do what God's called me to do. Since the storm is because of me, Let me get down on my knees and confess my sin to God and pray that he would save our lives. Since this storm has become because of me, let me pray to my God because he is the God of heaven and earth and he can certainly save us from the storm. Now, when you look at verse 12, it says, throw me into the sea. Every sentence about Jonah underscores how much he is done with God. He is just done. Everything that you would expect him to say and do at any given point, being a prophet of God, he does not do. Not only does he not go to Nineveh, he runs away. And not only does he run away, he's trying to run from the presence of God. And not only is he trying to run from the presence of God, when the storm hits the ship, he just continues to sleep. And when the sailors try to yell at him and say, you need to call out to your God, he doesn't do it. And when they finally figure out he's the cause, he simply says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. And the sea's getting worse. And they finally then are like, well, what are we supposed to do? And nowhere along the line does he say, let me call out to my God. His solution is that he would rather die than repent. He'd rather die than repent. He doesn't know what's going to happen in chapter 2. You do. He doesn't. (laughs) He just tossed me into the sea. What do you think is going to happen when we do that? He's done. He is completely checked out on God. Just toss me into the sea and that'll spare the ship and spare your lives. He has zero interest in turning back to God, zero interest in repentance, zero interest in calling out on his God. Friends, I want you to see not only the waywardness of this prophet, but he is a stubborn, stubborn prophet. 
He is truly done with God. To put this very concisely, Jonah refuses to surrender to the storm. He just refuses to surrender to the message of the storm. And I want you to think about how this scene is unfolding here as you think about what is told to us about verses 11 and 12. His rebellion is harming these sailors. We have the tendency to think that our disobedience toward God doesn't affect anybody else. We can quit on God and we'll run from God and we'll go our own way. And the consequences will only be on us and nobody else will ever be affected by our choice. And that is a lie. And Jonah's seen it right here. His decision is threatening to kill these sailors as the ship is breaking in pieces as the storm is getting worse and worse and worse. We fool ourselves into thinking that our sin doesn't affect anybody. We like to think that, oh, it won't have any consequences. There's not going to be any blowback, no curse, no issue, no, no problem whatsoever. And fail to see how often our sins affect our family. They affect our friends. They affect people who are close to us. They affect people we don't even know. You've been affected by the sins of people you've never met. The consequences of running from God are devastating. And it's all being played out on this boat as Jonah tries to run from God. I think verse 13 is particularly interesting as well. Jonah says the only way for this to work is for you to throw me overboard. They're not keen on that. Verse 13 says they row harder. We're not really thrilled with the idea of tossing you into the sea because they know what that means. Throw me overboard, I'm going to die right here in the middle of the sea in a raging storm. But you'll survive. So they row harder and harder. And I hope that you'll certainly think that obviously rowing against God's not going to succeed. We, we like that plan. We're going to just try harder. Here's God sending the storm, sending us a message, but we're going to row harder and harder and harder. Somehow we're going to break through and we're going to make it work. No, it's not going to happen. It says in verse 13, nevertheless, the men rowed harder to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea raged more and more against him. That's the third time we're told it's only getting worse and getting worse. And getting worse. And I want you to notice then what they do in verse 14. Notice we have a shift that happens. In verse 14 it does not say. And so they called out to their pagan gods again. Like they did earlier when the storm started. Now we're told in verse 14. They called out to the Lord. Oh Lord. Let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They state some big things here. Number one, let us not perish for this man's life. We're all about to die on the ship because he's running from you. This is not our fault. One, this is on him, not on us. Two, he says, and lay not on us innocent blood. What does he mean? We're about to throw him overboard. Don't hold that against us. He told us to. 
He said, this is the only way it's going to work. And that's this conclusion. Notice what they say at the end of that. For you, O Lord, have done as you please. Who's caused the storm? The Lord. Why is Jonah going overboard? The Lord. And they understand this. So don't hold this against us when we throw him overboard because, Lord, this is what you want. Lord, you have done this. This is exactly what you want. In verse 15, it says they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its rage raging. Have you ever thought about the strangeness of that right there? I hope you have. Here's my big question. I'll answer, try to answer it a little bit now and a little bit at the end. But here's my big confusion. Why do the sailors have to throw Jonah into the sea? My response as a sailor would be, Jonah, just jump into the sea. Why do I have to throw you overboard? You want to save us? Go. Off you go. That wouldn't have been hard. You want to jump? I mean, we just had that recently on our vacation. Somebody jumped off our cruise boat. But not that hard. We saved him. It's all right. Crazy. Crazy thing. Just Jonah jump. Why do the sailors have to throw him overboard? It's been hard to get off that thing. I want you to hold that question in your mind for a little while, but I do want you to note at least one thing I think we're seeing about Jonah still is he's still not lifting a finger toward God. He remains just as stubborn in his rebellion as ever. He tells him the solution, but he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to throw myself overboard. You want to be rescued? You're going to do it. And for this whole first chapter, it is just strong, strong rebellion against the will of God. Would you believe verse 16? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> Here is a prophet who is running from God, is in full rebellion of God, has no interest in turning his heart toward God, will not even cry out to God or give him a prayer or repent or tell them to turn around or any of those kinds of things. But the people who are on the ship with him, they all worship. They all fear it is amazing to me how often you can see God saving people and accomplishing his will in spite of our rebellion. How often God will bring about a rescue and save people through the foolishness and rebellion of others. It is stunning. The greatest example of that is Judas. The greatest example of those Judas. Judas, for his own selfish purposes, is interested in the money, betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and God uses that to save the world. God loves saving people in spite of the rebellion of others. 
And here you see the same thing. Even though Jonah will not lift up a finger toward God, these men fear the Lord exceedingly and now offer sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. Doesn't tell us what the vows are, but I think you can probably envision what those vows probably look like toward the Lord. As soon as Jonah goes overboard, the sea just goes. This God's different from our gods, aren't they? We've been crying out to our gods and nothing changed. But this Hebrew who says he fears the Lord, God of heaven and earth goes overboard and everything goes back to right. Let's talk about a couple of messages that we see here and then we'll spin back around to why Jonah has to get thrown off the boat. But here's the big one. And this is a hard one. This is really, really hard. But God can put you in a storm and wreck your boat and swallow you up in the sea in his effort to save your soul. That is the relentless grace of God. And that is hard to sometimes grapple with. That God is so interested in saving you that he will stick you in a storm to wake you up. That he will make things hard to try to get your eyes open. That he will bring about a situation that your boat threatens to be completely destroyed. So that you will turn your eyes upward toward God. I wrote it like this for myself. God will mess up your life to save you from yourself. He will mess up your life to save you from yourself. Unfortunately, what we do is we look at it in the exact opposite way. We look at the turmoil and the calamity and we get angry with God. We want God to allow us to keep running in our rebellion peacefully. Leave us alone. I want to do what I want to do. Don't give me a storm. Don't wreck my boat. Don't hurl me into the sea. I'm enjoying my rebellion. And it is the goodness of God to not let us run without objection, but tries to wake us up. And unfortunately, too often what we do is we act like Jonah and we do not pay attention to what God is doing. We don't pay attention. To how God may be trying to move pieces in our life so that we'll wake up, so that we'll look upward. Even the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the Christians in, in Ephesus, would make a quotation and says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's not writing to the dark world and say, hey, all you out there in the darkness, wake up and see. He's writing to Christians and saying, wake up. Open your eyes. And he's doing it to his own prophet, a prophet of God, a prophet who's prophesied in the name of the Lord before. Second Kings tells us. Will we open our eyes and look around and consider what God is trying to do? That he's trying to turn us back. And so often in our stubbornness like Jonah, we continue to plow forward. Friends, we need to surrender to the storm. 
We need to let the storm teach us. We need to allow the trials that we go through in life. Help us to be what God wants us to be. Now, I want to qualify two ideas with this. Let's make sure we don't forget what we learn in Job. Not every storm is because of sins. Job's three friends make a big mistake. And they walk into Job and go, the reason for your storm is you must be a sinner. That cannot be a conclusion that is absolutely drawn. It could be. It could be your storm is because you're being just like Jonah. But maybe not. Maybe you haven't done anything wrong. Maybe you haven't been running. But God is always telling us every storm is supposed to get our eyes upward. Every storm is intended to transform us further into the image of God. That's what James 1 is saying. Why should you count it all joy when you fall into trials? Can I summarize that? Because God's at work. Because you know the testing of your faith is going to produce. God's trying to transform us. So while every storm is not because of sin's friend, every storm is trying to change us. Every storm is trying to transform us. Every storm is intended to get our eyes upward. Every storm is intended to get our eyes off the earthly and worldly things and think more spiritually. Every storm is intended to do that. We must not be like Jonah and just plow straight ahead, ignoring the storm, ignoring the message, ignoring the solution, ignoring everything that is right in front of us of what God has called us to do. Every storm. It's supposed to get our eyes upward because God is Lord of the storm. Now, I asked you a question earlier that we'll we'll end on. I asked you earlier, why does Jonah say that these sailors have to throw him into the sea? (laughs) It's just such a curious thing. Jonah, be the hero. Jump in. And he says, no, no, you're going to have to throw me into the sea. I do think from his perspective, it's selfish. I think from his perspective, he's stubborn. He's not going to lift a finger toward God in the slightest. Chapter one is full of stubborn Jonah, which we'll read up here in chapter three as well as chapter four, but we'll get there. But it is interesting that the New Testament constantly makes a connection between the imagery of Jonah and Christ. You might remember one that's obvious where Jesus uses Jonah as a symbol and says, just as Jonah will end up in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will end up in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He makes a connection there of a resurrection symbolism. The fish, Lord willing, we'll look at next week of chapter 2. But one of the things I think is also interesting is when you read this scene about the ship, did it sound familiar? Have you heard? seen something like that in the New Testament where there's a storm breaking up a ship and all the people on the ship are panicking but the guy down in the bottom of the ship doesn't seem to be panicking at all and is actually asleep there is a very curious reverberation of a symbol happening in the days of Jesus with his disciples there is a time that we read about in the gospel of Mark Where a great wind, it says, comes up on the sea. Same terminology. And the storm begins to batter the ship. And the disciples run down and get Jesus out of the ship and do the exact same thing. Don't you care that we're perishing? 
is interesting that there is some key connections in pictures that are being drawn about. And I think the symbolism and the typology that's being given to us here is simply this. We can't go too far with the connection. Obviously, Jesus is not a rebellious prophet running away from God. Now, the symbolism that I think is intended here is is simply this. For why Jonah had to be thrown into the sea is because it would only be by the sacrifice of one that the whole would be saved. It is fascinating that Jesus does not save the world by killing himself, but giving his life so that the rest would be saved. It's a beautiful picture because our salvation is supposed to lead to worship just as these sailors understand the message of the storm and they worship God. And when Jesus stood up and calmed the sea, his disciples worshiped and understood who he was. Friends, surrender to the storm because God's working to save your eternal life. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to have, help us to have this perspective of the storms that come into our lives. Lord, help us to see that the purpose of our trials and our suffering is so that we would be molded into your image. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have decided to run from you. Forgive us for when we have ignored the storm that you have put into our lives. Forgive us for when we have not, in the midst of our storm, called out to you as we ought to have. Forgive us for when we have ignored the message of the storm that you intend into our hearts and into our lives. Lord, you are a good God. And sometimes it is hard to truly embrace that you send us storms to draw us back to you. Lord, I pray that you would give us spiritual vision so that in our hardships we would turn our eyes upward. In our pain, we would reach out in prayer. And in our storms, we would cry out in repentance. Lord, help us to surrender to the storms, to see your mighty hand in them, and to worship you as you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.